Well, good morning. You know, uh, I'm pretty excited about this text today. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, verse 23, and we're going to go through Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And the, the title of the message this morning is Christianity and the Law. So that's kind of a provocative title, but, but um, hopefully... I think it will be beneficial to us as far as reconciling, you know, um, the relationship, as far as understanding the relationship of Christianity and the law. Um, but anyway, I wanted to share something with you before I, I get started, is that I love the Scriptures. <laughs> I love the, the Word of God, and that's something that I discovered, and this is just a, a little personal thing, I discovered before I actually really started preaching, um, I got the opportunity to teach and I was teaching Wednesday night Bible study and and Charlie and I were in a pretty stressful situation at the time in, in employment. And so sometimes I'd be having a really, really hectic day and things would just be crazy. And I would get to go sit down and spend a couple hours studying and getting ready to teach. And I discovered that that is my happy place. That's one of the things I think that the Lord used to convince me that that's what I was supposed to do was to, to preach and to teach the Word is because no matter what's going on around me, if I can just get into the Word and the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit shows me His glory and the glory of Christ through His Word, it just changes things for me. It changes my demeanor and my outlook and my attitude. And so that is just a little bit of personal insight into what makes me tick. And um, with that being said, I just want to invite you with me this morning to exult in the Word. And that's, that's what we're going to do. Christianity and the law. I'm going to start reading in Acts 22, 23. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him, talking about Paul, to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he, the commander, might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, 
I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you set to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your scriptures. We thank you for revealing to us how you have worked through your servants and how you, how you establish your gospel and how you spread your kingdom and how you rule over the nations, how you rule over all things. Oh, Lord, I just ask that you be with us this morning as we look into this text, that you open it up to us. That you help us to see your glory and your majesty and your sovereignty and help us to exult in you, in your word and in your gospel. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we were in Acts 21.15 through 22.22. We covered a, a large block of text in two chapters, and we're doing the same thing this Sunday. Um, last Sunday, we were looking at Paul's arrival in Jerusalem after the completion of the third missionary journey. We were looking at his reception by the Jerusalem church and then the events that ensued afterwards. Um, and Paul was asked by the elders of the Jerusalem church to make a concession. He was asked to make a concession to the, the weak consciences of the Jewish converts. And what they asked him to do was just to submit himself to a purification ritual, a Nazarite vow. It was a purification ritual of the Jewish religion. They had a reason for asking that he do that because although the, the Jewish converts had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, 
that he had put away their sins and granted them eternal life and made them citizens of his kingdom. They believed that. But they had a lot of baggage and faulty presuppositions due to their religious and ethnic traditions, the things that they'd been taught all their lives. We all have those things. And even though Christianity, and even though Paul taught that reconciliation to God, resurrection from the dead, and, and, and citizenship in the kingdom, that, that these things come to anyone by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by the way, Peter, James, John, and the rest of the apostles also believed and taught these same things that Paul was teaching. Lest there be any misunderstanding, if we look back at the, the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, verse 11, Peter said, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And he's speaking of the Gentiles. So he is saying that entrance to the kingdom of God is the same for everybody. It doesn't matter what their nationality is, their background. Does it, not, nothing external or physical matters. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus alone. And so that is, it was, and it is the, the consensus teaching of Orthodox Christianity. That was the consensus 2,000 years ago and it's the consensus today. But even though it was, the early Jewish converts suffered from a great deal of of, we're going to learn a new term. The term is cognitive dissonance. They suffered from this. It's a condition that everybody has at some point or another. What is it? Well, simply put, cognitive dissonance is believing two or more things that are actually in opposition to each other. At the same time, and then failing to see the logical inconsistency. And we all have things that we believe that if we just really studied it out, um, we would realize, well, you know, those two things just don't really work. Well, that's what they're dealing with here. Um, and, but we all, we all suffer from that, especially when it comes to emotional topics like religion and politics. So what this looked like for a lot of the early Jewish Christians was that though they were trusting Jesus for the resurrection, they were still very emotionally attached to the religious and ethnic traditions that they were ingrained with. They were still very attached to them. They believed that they people of their ethnicity, their heritage, people in their geographical area under the covenant that they grew up under. All of these things, they believe that is what made them God's people. They, they believe that. They believe they were the people of God because they were ethnic descendants of Abraham through Jacob. They believed that they were, even before faith in Jesus, members of the covenant people of God because of their circumcision. They believed that they were righteous people because they followed the law of Moses. 
Not perfectly. They didn't believe that. Now, they believed there were degrees. You know, the Pharisees and a lot of the religious leaders thought that they were better than all the rest of them because they did a better job of keeping the law. But it wasn't perfect keeping of the law that made you righteous. It was keeping the law. It was being under the law. So they believed they were righteous. And they believed that they were clean. They believed that they were pure because they participated in the Jewish sacrificial system and the purification rituals that were established under the law of Moses. And I know it probably... I talked about this last week. I've talked about it before, and it probably seems like I'm kicking a dead horse with all this stuff. But it's imperative that we understand it, not only about them, but also about ourselves. If we're going to get to the plain, simple truth of the gospel, because all of these things that they were taught to believe all of their lives didn't go away when they came to believe in Jesus. They didn't go away. So you could ask me, are you saying that regeneration and being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't instantly correct all of your faulty presuppositions and bad theology? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Did you know that there are Christians who still own a lucky hat? You know, there's still athletes who profess Christ, but they've got that pair of socks they're going to wear at every ball game. See, all of that stuff doesn't go away just because you come to have faith in Christ. There's Christians out there who believe that the earth is millions of years old. You know why? Because they were taught it all their life in school. The funny thing is, they say we're wrong because we believe what a book says, and they were just taught what a book says. Did you know that there are Christians who believe that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that they, of their own free will, would choose to put their trust in Jesus, and then based on that foresight, God chose them to be elect? There are Christians who believe that because they were taught it all their life. And the list could go on and on. Well, I believe you understand the point. These, these immature Jewish believers were being told by anti-Christian Jews that everywhere Paul was going, he was preaching against everything they held dear. And that he was convincing good Jews to abandon their heritage, their culture, their morality, and just live like pagans. Sin all the more that grace may abound. Now Paul wasn't preaching that. He wasn't preaching that being a physical, ethnic, law-keeping Jew was bad and should be abandoned. He was not preaching that. What Paul was preaching was that being a physical, ethnic, law-keeping Jew or any other physical, external thing about you did not make you a citizen of the kingdom. That's what he was preaching. And to the anti-Christian Jew, that was the same thing. That was the same thing. And correcting of this misperception was the purpose of Paul going through the purification ritual. That was the elders' logic there in Jerusalem. So 
we're going to have him go through this ritual. When the ritual was almost complete, Paul was noticed in the temple by some of the anti-Christian Jews who recognized him from Asia, probably from Ephesus. And they started a riot. They drug him out of the temple and were attempting to beat him to death when the Roman authorities intervened. The Roman commander allowed Paul to address the crowd and he used the opportunity to give him his testimony of the Lord Jesus' grace in his life. The crowd listened until he got to the part about the grace going to the Gentiles, being sent to them. And at that point, they were offended beyond their ability to listen and they degenerated into a mob once again. And that brings us to our text today. That's where we're at. So let's just start going through it. Verses 23 and 24. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. The crowd's getting out of control again. So the commander orders Paul to be brought into the barracks and examined, which is, really means tortured. Because he's going to be examined by scourging in order to determine what Paul has done to incite this crowd into a riot. Now scourging, that's what they did to Jesus before they hung Him on the cross. They've got this whip. And it's basically a stick with, with straps coming off of it, several straps. Um, some people called it a cat of nine tails, but all of these straps that come off have got bone and glass and rock and steel or iron, uh, metal and stuff embedded in the straps. So when they whip you with that thing, it rips the hide off. It is an instrument of torture. Most people didn't survive it. But the commander is wanting to find out what's going on. He's probably mad at Paul <laughs> um, because, see, his job is to maintain order. His job is to enforce the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Um, and Luke probably didn't tell us everything that Paul said to the commander when he convinced him to allow him, Paul, to address the crowd. But whatever Paul told him, it did convince him that it would be helpful to restore order. The commander didn't just let Paul talk just because he was feeling kind and generous that day. He's thinking that if Paul addresses this crowd that's a mob, maybe he'll calm them down. And I don't know what Paul said to him to get him to think that because that's his job. That's the commander's job is to keep the peace, to restore order. Whatever Paul said to him had convinced him to allow Paul to speak. And it probably seemed like it was working through most of Paul's dialogue because the crowd got quiet and listened. <clears throat> but of course, when Paul said that the Lord sent him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the crowd erupted into violence again. And to add insult to injury for the Roman commander... 
it's pretty probable that the commander didn't speak Aramaic or the Hebrew dialect that, that Paul was speaking in. So he didn't have a clue what Paul was saying. He just knows they kind of hush up for a little bit and then suddenly they just erupt again. He just knows that the ride has started back up. It's his job to stop it and get to the bottom of it. So that's, that's what's going on and he orders Paul to be examined. Verse 25 and 26 says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The title of this message is Christianity and the Law. And I believe that the Holy Spirit shows us in these events the nature of the relationship <coughs> between Christianity and the law. And these two verses are kind of the beginning, but not really. <coughs> the beginning of this picture by the Holy Spirit was actually in the last sermon. I'll tell you why. The first, the only reason that Paul was even in the temple doing what he was doing with that purification ritual was to testify to the Jewish Christians that Paul wasn't against the law. That's why he was in there. Second, the reason why the Asian Jews started a riot based on a lie, an assumption, and then tried to kill Paul rather than taking him before the council, before the Sanhedrin, was that they had absolutely nothing substantial that they could charge him with according to the law. And you say, well, the text doesn't say that. How do you know that? The text doesn't explicitly say it. But in chapter 23, the Roman commander is going to Convene the council. He's going to order the Sanhedrin to convene so that he can determine exactly what it is that they have against Paul according to the law. Guess what? The members of the Sanhedrin who know the law better than anyone there except maybe Paul don't charge him with anything. I just let that sink in. This is their opportunity, but they don't bring one charge. And then third, the providence of God in the form of the secular Roman authorities intervened to keep Paul from being lawlessly murdered by those who claim to be righteous because of their keeping of the law. The irony is so thick that you can cut it with a knife. Listen to Romans. Uh, Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear or of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I'm going to say that the sword of Rome, the Lord Jesus used it as a minister of good for Paul and for the gospel. See, the Lord Jesus is sovereign over Rome. And He uses secular human governments and authorities to work out His purposes in this world. So, before you ask, does that mean that we support evil and unbiblical laws or activities? Absolutely not. But we are to conduct ourselves as ambassadors for Christ, just like Paul was doing, and trust Him to rule over the secular authorities, and He is. He's ruling over them right now. So when the soldiers stretch Paul out to scourge him, he uses Roman law to his advantage. And he informs the centurion that he is a Roman citizen. The Romans believed in a concept that we call due process of law, but they believed in it only for Roman citizens. If you weren't a Roman citizen, they'd do whatever they felt like with you. But if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be legally punished in any way, including interrogation, without a fair hearing. And as a, a representative of the government, a soldier or a centurion, you were on shaky ground, even having a Roman citizen restrained or imprisoned without a solid charge against them. So when the centurion found out that Paul was a Roman, he immediately reported it to the commander. That brings us to verse 27. 27 through 29, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So as soon as the commander hears this, he comes to Paul to verify it for himself. He asked him, just asked him the question, are you a Roman? Paul answered yes. <coughs> they didn't carry driver's licenses or social security cards or citizenship papers around with them. Um, there would have been a birth certificate or a diploma of citizenship if you purchased or received your citizenship as a reward. And your name would have been recorded, and of course this is the reason why, your name would have been recorded on the taxation table of your city. But you didn't have a card that you carried around saying you were a Roman. And you didn't have a particular style of dress that said you were a Roman. Except for the toga, there was no particular style of clothing that would distinguish a Roman from any other nationality. 
Um, and like I said, papers that validated citizenship were usually kept in family archives. They didn't carry them around. So here's the, the result. If anyone claimed Roman citizenship, it was accepted at face value. You think, well, anybody could claim that. Well, it didn't happen because <laughs> the penalty for making a false claim to citizenship was death. So you didn't claim it if it wasn't true. Because when they checked you out, they would kill you if it wasn't true. So the commander, he spoke to Paul of having purchased his citizenship at a high price. But Paul was born a citizen. A commentator that I read said that it was likely that one of Paul's ancestors had been granted citizenship as a, as a reward for service to a Roman administrator or a general, maybe even Pompey, because he was active in the region of Tarsus and Cilicia. And when the soldiers who were about to scourge Paul realized that he was a Roman, they immediately turned him loose and they recoiled in fear. And even the commander's afraid because he'd probably broken Roman law by putting chains on a Roman citizen who hadn't been formally charged. So, verse 30. But, on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. The Roman commander still has a job to do. Paul's a Roman. He's going to get a lot better treatment. But the commander still got a job to do. He has to report to his supervisors on what caused the riot. And you know what? He's responsible for preventing that riot from happening to begin with. And he's responsible for making sure that it doesn't happen again. So, the next day, he's got to find out exactly what crime the Jews are charging Paul with. And to do that, he ordered the chief priests and the council to convene. So, this is their opportunity to, by the law, we can do something about this guy. Using the law, we can silence him. The commander released Paul so that he could go down and address the council. And that's where we're at in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 23. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you set to try me according to the law? And in violation of the law, order me to be struck. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul begins his address to the council by assuring them that he has a clear conscience before God. 
He's, he's starting out just by saying, my conscience is clear, guys. And the high priest violated the law by having someone who was standing next to Paul hit him in the mouth. Paul was probably shocked. He was not expecting that. And because he was shocked, he has an uncharacteristic display of angry retaliation. I mean, reading through all of the narrative, you don't see this. But in this uncharacteristic retaliation, he insulted the high priest and called him out for his violation of the law. Evidently, the high priest did not wear his high priestly robe to the council. So all these guys are dressed alike. And Paul, he's been on the mission field for many years. He didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. He didn't realize that this is who it was. So in his ignorance, he violated the law himself by reviling the high priest, by insulting him. But when Paul's called out on this, he's quick to acknowledge his error and even quoted the Scripture from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, that he had violated. So he's, it's basically an apology. He said, I didn't know he was the high priest. The Scripture says don't, don't do that. And... Uh, so he acknowledges his error. On the other hand, Ananias, the high priest, never acknowledged his own transgression. And it's pretty certain that the law meant nothing to him except how he could use it for his own purposes. So we'll just get a little historical information on who this guy was. Luke doesn't give it to us, but this guy reigned as high priest from 48 AD to either 58 or 59. And he was known for his own greed and liberal use of violence. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that Ananias regularly confiscated the tithes that were given to the ordinary priest for himself. And then he used the money to give lavish bribes to the Roman authorities and to politically connected Jews that he wanted to influence. He was hated by the Jewish nationalists. And when the rebellion against Rome began in 66 AD, his house was burned and he was forced to flee. He was finally caught hiding in an aqueduct on the grounds of the palace of Herod the Great and he was killed by his own people. So it could rightly be said that Paul's prophecy that God would strike him for his lawlessness did come to pass. It did catch up with him. But that's the guy that Paul was dealing with. Now let's look at verses 6 through 9. But before I say that, the, re the reason why I said that the way I did is I just want us to see the contrast between Christianity and just pure legalism, usage of the law. Yes, Paul violated the law unknowingly. But when he found out that he did, he immediately was convicted of it and confessed it, acknowledged his, his, his error. The high priest, no acknowledgement. He saw the law as something that he used. There's a difference. 
So let's look at verses 6 through 9. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. In these verses, these three, I think this is the center of this whole narrative. In these verses, the Holy Spirit gives Paul a flash of insight. And he's able to illustrate that there is no conflict between the law and Christianity. And the Jews have no charge that they can bring against Paul according to the law. If they did, they'd bring it. Paul makes one simple claim, and that claim is the foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of our faith. Christianity is not about law. It's not about heritage or custom or external righteousness or ceremonial purity or sacrifice or anything that we do or don't do. Christianity is about the hope and resurrection of the dead. <laughs> Providence of God, it always just thrills me whenever this happens. Guess what our text was in Sunday school? <laughs> John chapter 11. What did Jesus do in John chapter 11? He raised the dead publicly. Raised Lazarus from the dead. Paul makes this statement knowing that the council is divided between Sadducees and Pharisees and knowing that the real source of their problem with him and with Christianity boils down to this one issue. And you know what? They already arrested Peter and John for the exact same issue. And they've already drugged them before the council in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at it. Verses 1 through 3. We'll look at them first. In Acts 4, 1 through 3. This is after the healing of uh, the lame man at the beautiful gate. And Peter preaches. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Well, let's see what happens the next day. We'll look at, we'll start in verse 13. Now, as they say, they bring Peter and John out before the council. It says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. 
But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go. Why did they do that? Because they had no basis on which to punish them, according to the law. Finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. In John chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead publicly. People go report to the council. You know what their conclusion is? We've got to kill this guy. People are going to believe in him. Hadn't broken any laws, but we've got to kill him because of the resurrection of the dead. Peter and John are preaching in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They can't charge him with the law. Same thing happens with Paul. See, the problem that the world has with Christianity is the resurrection of the dead. And even more specifically, the problem that the world has with Christianity is in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Why is that a big deal? Because if hope and resurrection and eternal life is found in Jesus, then so is the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God is found in Jesus, then it's not found in national Israel or Judah. It's not found in the United States of America or Rome. As a matter of fact, it's not found in this temporary physical existence at all. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking <coughs> But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's Romans 14, 17. That's why they want to kill Paul. Not because he's broken any law. But when he makes that statement about the resurrection from the dead in a mixed assembly of Pharisees who believe in the resurrection and Sadducees who don't, they immediately fall into a heated argument. And it winds up with some of the Pharisees even defending Paul and arguing that they can find nothing wrong with him. Just testifying to the world, there's no charge to be brought. Testifying to Rome, to the commander, there's no charge that we can bring. <laughs> this guy's done nothing wrong. What's the result? The most powerful assembly in Jerusalem with the most knowledge of the law, cannot come up with one single charge to present to the Roman commander against Paul. 
And verse 10 says, And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Divine providence again intervenes through the Roman authorities. The Sanhedrin was in such an uproar that the Roman commanders afraid that they're going to actually tear Paul to pieces. So he orders his troops to go down and remove him by force and take him into protective custody, really. And take him back into the safety of the Roman barracks. And we have verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his, Paul's side, and said, Take courage. For as you solemnly witnessed in my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. That night, the night immediately following all this, the Lord comes to Paul and he encourages him. And he encourages him that just as he has witnessed for the Lord in Jerusalem, he's going to do the same thing in Rome. And this probably influenced Paul to entrust himself to God's providential protection. Not only did it give him encouragement that he's going to make it through this, but Paul's probably sitting there thinking, and that's speculation, but he's probably sitting there thinking, should I... Should I stay here or should I leave? I mean, there's no charges against me. Paul could have walked out of that prison. I'm pretty sure the Roman commander would let him go. He hasn't been charged. But the Lord came and spoke to him and told him, you're going to witness for me at Rome. And so Paul entrusts himself to God's providential protection provided through the Roman authorities. And it's going to be a couple of years. Now, we're going to cover it pretty quickly through the text, but it's going to be a couple of years between here and Rome that the Lord's going to work out His purpose and He's going to bring Paul to Rome in His time. So, so what do we take from this? What do we take from this text? First, I think we need to realize and settle in our minds that the foundation of Christianity and the appeal of Christianity and the offense of Christianity is all the same. It's all the same thing. And it has nothing to do with morality or law or ethnicity. It's very simply this. From 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It doesn't matter what else you have. Our message is in Jesus and only in Jesus, resurrection from the dead and eternal life in His kingdom. And as far as the relationship and supposed conflict between Christianity and the law is concerned, the truth is that if we're living as Christians and we're focusing on the central truth of the gospel, you know what Paul said about that? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
And, and what charge are they going to bring? Listen to this from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I'm going to close with this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Oh, we thank You for eternal life in Christ. Resurrection. We ask that You just settle these things in our hearts and minds and help us to glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.